Hello and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is volume 6, issue 293, Beyond Good and Evil. You can play along with the show. The entire schedule up to and including issue 300 can be found on the Cane and Rinse website, but for those looking into the very near future, the next five issues will cover Capcom vs. series. Following on from issues 247 and 262, we will be covering Project Gotham Racing 3 and 4. The third in a list of five series shows uh, is Mega Man and Mega Man 2. Then we're starting off covering something else. Final Fantasy and Final Fantasy 2, the, the oft-requested. And then carrying on another series that we're doing. We seem to be juggling quite a few here. <laughs> we are. Uh, Previously covered in issue 282 uh, was Super Mario Kart, and in 298, that'll be, we'll be covering Mario Kart 64. So there you go, lots of series being uh, being covered. As I mentioned, you can find issues beyond that, only up to 300. The rest of the schedule is pending. You can find those at the website. You can also, at the website, caneandrinse.com, find articles, features, reviews, links to our forum, our Facebook page, and our YouTube channel. Please do also check out our video games music podcast, Sound of Play, and if you would be so kind as to review, rate, and subscribe both of our podcasts on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, Radio, TuneIn, or whichever other platform you uh, download podcasts from, that would be fantastic and much appreciated. Now, joining me, James Carter, in issue 293 are Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Leah Hedu. Hi. And Tony Atkins. Hello. Now, Beyond Good and Evil, speaking of oft-requested, this one definitely fits the bill. Developed by Ubisoft Montpellier and also uh, with some support from Ubisoft Milan. The HD remaster was handled by Ubisoft Shanghai. Publisher, obviously, Ubisoft. Uh, director, uh, Michel Ancel, and notable because it's not often that chief execs get their name as a, uh, as a producer credit, but in this case, Yves Guimot is very definitely a producer on uh, on this game, Beyond Good and Evil. Designers, you'll hear his name several times here. Michel Ancel is designer along with Sebastian Moran. Um, writers, yes again, Michel Ancel, writer of this game, along with Jacques Exertier, uh, I, I, I hope I'm getting pronunciations right here. Artists Florence Sacre and Paul Tumilaire. Uh, a name that I am familiar with, Christophe Hiral, notable for his, uh, I think, excellent scores on Rayman Origins and Rayman Legends. And the engine, the Jade engine, an engine that's developed purely for this game. Uh, by a fairly small team to begin with, there were only 30 staff on the game uh, at its inception and therefore when the engine was also being developed. It took about three years worth of development for what was initially uh, titled Project B, G and E. I, I presume therefore it was always going to be called Beyond Good and Evil. Uh, it may of course be that that referred to the book and they had maybe idea that they would change the name, but uh, yeah, Project BG and E, when it first appeared at E3, was the title card. So, uh, Michelle and Sal, I think it's uh, worth mentioning, gave uh, an interview around the release of the game, just before, actually, to GameSpy. Uh, and and paraphrasing, he, he said the idea behind Beyond Good and Evil was to give players a meaningful story and the freedom to explore a universe. So the, the linearity 
uh, of certain sections and the fact that you get given a cutscene to explain some story and then you're kind of sent off with a certain amount of freedom in between that and the next one that's that's a design philosophy that kind of ran through the game so but by the time Michel Ansel was giving that interview the game had gone through even in its short three years development plenty of changes uh it was as far as I can tell first shown at E3 2002 it was certainly the first of the E3 showings it had two of those and Michel Ansel is actually quoted as, as saying his memory of it is that they got no applause for the the it wasn't a trailer it was like a teaser that they put up <laughs> uh, he remembers being around the booth expecting people to want to ask for interviews and that didn't happen and that meant there was a significant reworking done of the game. Some of the scope was pulled back a little in order to, to kind of tighten up and focus what the game was supposed to be. That initial E3 2002 trailer was very, very focused on photography, which kind of fits with, I guess, the style of the game, but not necessarily something that people wanted to to flock towards, uh, which brings us to the release of the game. As is still the case somewhat, it had a bit of a scattered release across different versions and territories um so ps2 versions were released 11th november 2003 in north america then 14th november in europe and they get more scattered after that over the next sort of four months through to end of february 2004 the uh, uh the european versions on xbox and gamecube uh finally came out so not the the worst disparity but it just looks a bit scattershot when you look at the kind of release schedule there uh, dates through November, December, and then into February. Conversely, the HD remaster had a worldwide release on uh, 2nd of March 2011 on Xbox 360. It had a period of exclusivity there uh, before the PS3 version came out unusually in Europe first on 8th of June 2011, and then uh, 20 days later than that in North America. The spread across different versions of the game is is actually particularly narrow. On Metacritic, uh, for, from the HD re-release and the uh, the original, uh, the spread is eighty three to eighty seven. That's pretty darn narrow. Uh, game rankings similarly eighty three point two two up to eighty eight point six one percent. So critically, incredibly well received, I would say, for something that's brand new. Sales wise, not so much. There's no figures for PC version original or or the HD re-release because the HD re-release was entirely digital and figures just weren't released. There are comments anecdotally that that uh, Ubisoft were very happy with the HD re-release, but originally it was to say a disaster. Uh, flop is words that people from Ubisoft have have said um, 510,000 copies worldwide across the three original console versions, according to VG charts. About two-thirds of that was on PS2, um, which, which just makes sense for, for the time uh, and the fact that it came out first in both territories. I, I'm, I'm not one for quoting Wikipedia, but I thought the way that this particular paragraph was put seems salient to today's video game industry. I thought it was just worth reading through. Official US PlayStation Magazine staff attributed the poor sales of the game, among many other 2003 releases, to an oversaturated market and labelled Beyond Good and Evil as a commercial disappointment. In retrospect, Ansel noted that consumers at the time were interested in established franchises and technologically impressive games. Coupled with the number of big titles available, he stated that the market was a poor environment for Beyond Good and Evil and that it would take time to be appreciated. The official US PlayStation Magazine staff further commented that the lack of marketing from Ubisoft and the game's odd premise naturally reserved it to obscurity. Um, 
preserved it to obscurity is not a Fraser saying, so I'm assuming that's just kind of misquoted. The Wikipedia quote then goes on to talk about how Ubisoft just didn't know how to market this game, and that seems like something we've heard time and time again, even fairly recently. You know, poor sales for certain games come down to expectations, but also busy market when it's released. You know, it, I think I thought it was just worth saying that this is not a new thing. This was, you know, it's been mm. happening for years and years and years. Which brings us neatly to uh, finding out how we all played the game, because my suspicion is a large number of people listening, if they've played the game, will have played the HD remaster. Um, is there anyone who played the original version first? I did. Uh, I played sure. the original version on uh, GameCube, and it was... Uh, I don't believe that I got it right at release, but it was it was close. Uh, and um, yeah, so I played that version uh, when it came out, and then uh, purchased the HD re-release pretty much right when it came out uh, and yeah. did not actually end up playing it until uh, preparing for this podcast, uh, which I'm right. very glad I did because I would have told you um, and, and still would that um, I really enjoyed it at the time. And, but man, I forgot about a lot of things. So <laughs> um, definitely glad that I refreshed on that, but yes, I did play uh, the original version and I think my, I still have my copy around here somewhere. Uh, I did not look for it, but I bet it's there. Josh, am I right in thinking you played the original version first? Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I played the original version on PS2, but not um, during the release period. Um, this is another example of me kind of wanting to catch up on what I perceive to be, you know, classics of the, the medium. And uh, in 2010, I, you know, dusted off my PS2, plugged it into my TV and and uh, went through Beyond Good and Evil. And then I think uh, four or five months later, they announced the HD version, which came out in 2011. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, why didn't I? Well, just if only I waited a bit longer. Um, but yeah, I uh, so I played through that. And then um, I've played a decent amount of the HD version on both 360 and PS3. Excellent. Uh, Tony, how about you? Yeah, I played the GameCube version uh, way back in 2004. Um, I'm going to say I brought it primarily because I love the cover art. Yeah. And that seems like something that uh, you know you would, you would do when you're younger. But I think it's got a really striking design. Um, so it wasn't you know, E3, you know, those things were, were less of a big deal back then. But um, you know, I always liked the design of it. So I think it was pretty much the cover art. And I mm. desperately played for more stuff on my GameCube. So I, for some, some reason, I didn't play it on the PS2. I waited for the GameCube release. Um, I've gone back and replayed it on the the 360, or on this case, the Xbox One. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, backwards compatibility of the 360. And yeah, it's interesting. I know you were talking about it only sold around 500,000 copies yeah. that we know of. The the leaderboards, at least on that game, for, for one of my friends on my friends list who had only played 5%, so presumably just started up the game and did the, you know, the various bases and stuff, mm. was about 540,000 right. on the leaderboard. Right. So presumably it's sold presumably more, it's sold more copies well, yeah, yeah um, just from that kind of anecdotal information so who knows but it, yeah at least it kind of yeah I, I feel like it, it's maybe it's legacy is is you know help that figure it's a bit of a cult classic so yes um, sat down to, to replay it and just to, to, to fill in some blanks because 2004 is a long time ago but mm -hmm. I remember absolutely really 
loving the game. Um, so yeah. having a, a replay of it now was a, a good context of you know game design in in 2004 versus you know game design now. So uh, as seems to be de rigueur, I'm, af- I'm afraid I was the last to come to this game. Uh, I didn't play it just for the show. It should be said uh, I played it. So I I picked it up when it came out on Xbox 360 on Xbox Live Arcade. Um, as an HD remaster, uh, and I played it not right away, but I think the first achievement I have was unlocked in May uh, 2011, so a couple of months after it came out as an HD uh, remaster. Um, and I went back to it, and I didn't finish it this time, but I did play through about half and then uh, watch some highlights to just remind me of how the, the story ends for the rest of the game. Um and uh, uh, yeah, so so I I've not played the original version at all. The only version I've played is uh, is that HD remaster on Xbox 360. So, although as as Tony said, it's via backwards compatibility. Um, I, I initially wanted to play it much like Josh, uh, you said, because at the time I was kind of going back and using Xbox Live Arcade uh, predominantly to try and fill in. Uh, gaps in in my uh, gaming experience and in 2003 I was playing pretty much nothing but Hitman and Max Payne and Splinter Cell so I just completely skipped by this and came back it was nice to come back to it later alongside stuff like uh, Psychonauts and Shenmue um, which we've we've covered previously but that was the kind of era I was I was playing through those um, and trying to to round out my my uh, gaming background as it were so before we talk about anything else, I think we haven't mentioned any spoilers as far as game story or anything goes so far, but this, I think it's fair to say, is a, a story-heavy game. Um, not overly so, but there's plenty of uh, twists and turns in the in the tale, um, and and therefore if, if you don't want to know what happens in the game, uh, you have been warned. We are, we're not going to hold back from this point forward. I feel like there should be a, a massive long list of influences that this game draws from and yet when i look at it when i play it when i think about it i really struggle not to see ps2 era 3d platformers as being the beginning and end of those influences and i I know there should be more but that's i just can't get past seeing that um and so uh, Tadinho left a wonderful post on our forums, caninrince.com forward slash forum. There are uh, threads up on there for upcoming podcasts, and, and Tadinho posted a, a fantastic one. So a, a snippet from him, uh, he says, Beyond Good and Evil is the kind of game I immediately so- associate with the PS2 era. It's the kind of action-adventure game that still retained a lot of the DNA from the mascot platformers of the 90s. And at the time it was released, that was the type of game I was all about. So I played it, really enjoyed it, and waited for the sequel that was never to come. More from Tadinho later. But that that's kind of where I'm at. I'm hoping you guys can can look past the Ratchet and Clanks and the Jack and Daxters and tell me what I missed as far as where this game's lineage, uh, where it came from. Uh, this this might be a little bit of a stretch uh, and... Uh, but I would say that you could probably look at like Mario 64 uh, and on one hand that is in in the way that any 3D platformer uh, really owes 
it's it's uh sure. itself yeah. to Mario 64 but also you have uh, a few things in there such as um you're not taking pictures in Mario 64 but you do have certain uh places where you need to uh use the camera uh, mm. to kind of adjust things. You do have the conceit to where you need to collect something uh, and go looking for it. It's not just something that's immediately awaiting you at the end of every level. It's mm. something that you kind of have to go seeking out in order to progress further on. And I mean, that's it's not, it is far from being a direct analog, but I, I think that, that you can probably look that far back to see some of the yep. things that uh, that would connect to it stylistically and um in in terms of just the way the characters animate and stuff like that absolutely i think uh beyond good and evil is very much a, a game of its era it's very mm. much drawing from the jack and daxters and stuff like that but gameplay wise um i always felt like beyond good and evil was kind of like a lighter take on the 3d zelda formula and i'm talking okay. pre-breath of the wild 3d zelda um, yeah yeah, yeah of course. Um, a lot of the... <laughs> is that a thing now do we have to do that <laughs> yeah yeah i think we do now um yeah I, I mean a lot of the elements are there you've got a big kind of open environment admittedly we're not talking wind waker or ocarina of time big but it is a fairly open area you've got the you know it's equivalent of temples where you just go in there's some environmental puzzles mm. there's some enemies to kill um yeah like it because there's not really that much in the way of 3D platforming, or at least with the depth that I would expect from a 3D platformer, um, a lot of it is automated in the same way that a Zelda game is automated. And there's much more of a focus on kind of manipulating the environment to get past an obstacle rather than perfectly executing a sequence of jumps through an obstacle course like you'd expect from a Jack and Daxter. Hmm. Yeah, for, for me, I, I think... I feel like it's um, a combination of many things around that era. Like it, it's maybe one of its flaws. It doesn't quite know what it wants to be, so it borrows a, a lot of stuff from everybody. So if I think about the photography, I, the one that always comes to mind is Fatal Fame, and it's and it's just because that was an unusual. Oh, okay, you're taking pictures as your kind of weapon in that game. And yes, it's yeah, the pictures are a weapon, I guess, to take down an organization. But it was an, an unusual thing to have to do. It's a its own version of a collectathon. But then it's kind of got a mix of stealth in there, and it feels like okay, well, was that something like a, a hangover from Metal Gear being really popular that they needed to, to kind of that was a, a you know going through the industry at the time you know three or four years later that you needed yeah. a little bit of that in your games as well mm. so it feels like it it borrows from a lot I mean, it's certainly not i don't think it's a platformer it, it's it's i know exactly what you're saying by the jack and Daxter references because it, it shares that kind of pseudo open hub world that leads into areas mm. but actually the gameplay itself yes there is you know there's areas you jump from from jump to jump but it's you know it's not i don't know if you can fall down, can you? I think it's just no. You've, there's invisible walls everywhere. Yeah. yeah, so I think you're just just yeah pressing the button to jump to a to a platform and move around. It doesn't feel unique. It's kind of got its own little groove, which is a combination of many titles put yeah. into one. I, I mentioned it before that the other game that came to mind, which wouldn't be an influence, but definitely I guess a peer, uh, Psychonauts does that in, in kind of a way that yeah, very much. It's got yeah. platforming elements, but to call it a platformer, well, that's not its core thing that it does well. Um, and definitely it has a more expansive 
uh, gameplay scope than well, I think with Psychonauts as well. Like for. that's a core idea, and everything is based around that core idea. And, and I think you know the same could be said with Beyond Good and Evil. It, it has a core idea, and I think the picture stuff is a, a core idea. Definitely. Be it the collectathon, be it you know the taking down of a you know. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna say not really a government, the taking down of an yeah, organisation, yeah, yeah. um, and I think yeah that's its central pivot point, and I think it it runs off from that. But yeah, I don't necessarily see it as a platformer. The other thing that's worth mentioning, although to say it was an influence beyond the title, I think would be a stretch. I haven't read the book, so I don't know, but I I, I didn't see much Friedrich Nietzsche in the game. <laughs> um, <laughs> he wrote a book called Beyond Good and Evil. It, it's Maybe. A cracking title for a game, uh, got to say, but but yeah, uh, I'm not entirely sure that this is supposed to be any kind of retelling or uh, influenced by the um, ideas proposed in in that to any extent. I just thought it was worth mentioning. That's where the title comes from. So if you search for "Beyond Good and Evil" quotes, like I did, because we have a nice little quote at the top of our uh, our blog page for each thing, um, you get a lot of Nietzsche and not so much <laughs> Jaden Page. Um, so. So, t- talking of the gameplay, uh, worthwhile getting onto that. We've got a couple of forum posts here. Um, the first from Nick Turner. Uh, Josh, would you mind reading this one out, please? Okay, so Nick Turner says, I very much enjoyed this game from the start, as it was something quite different. Using a camera to take photographs instead of shooting people with guns was an interesting alternative, and the interaction with your companions through the game always kept me entertained, whether it was your Uncle Page or clumsy guard Double H, who you rescue early on. The only combat is done via a wooden pole, somewhat like the bow used by Donatello from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and the combat style is like an early version of the Batman Arkham games with contextual hits based on enemy locations. I don't recall if there was a block function, but I guess there must have been. Beyond Good and Evil has various sections to it, including stealth-based sections as you sneak around a huge factory, and some boat racing sections as you avoid capture from the Imperial Guard types, who are always chasing you. There was also some flying elements and possibly space was involved, although I don't quite recall. Plus, of course, using the camera to take photographs of the wildlife on the planet... The way the gameplay was always mixing up kept me engrossed in its proceedings. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, uh, worth saying, actually, in, in his intro to his post, um, Nick did say he wanted to write that purely from his memories of having played it at the time without going back to it. So it was just a distillation of of his lasting impressions. Uh, following on from that, I think before we get into discussing um, the the gameplay aspects that we'd like to to mention, Todinho also left in his post a little bit about uh, gameplay. Leo, would you like to uh, just let us know what Todinho had to say? So Todinho says, gameplay-wise, the photography element made Beyond Good and Evil stand out. In fact, the most fun I had in the game was taking pictures. Hunting down all the fauna for photos was something that became really addicting, and I remember going out of my way to photograph every single animal before the end of the game. Other than that, I really enjoyed the stealth sections. They fit well with the journalist theme, and it was really funny to kick the soldiers in the back and send them flying. The combat and puzzle solving were very by the numbers, but I did enjoy the additions of your companions through the levels that helped mix things up. I also liked driving around in the hovercraft, but I distinctly remember hating the races you had to do at times. So, that their gameplay. 
third-person action adventure is about the least committal to any kind of genre <laughs> that I think you can be. <laughs> it kind of runs the you gamut You don't know there what else to say about the genre it becomes. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's a little milk toast as a description, mm. but it, it's, I mean, it's apt. You know, there's action in it, absolutely, um, and you are exploring, which tends to be the adventure part of that. And yes, it's third person. Um, there's also... To call it open world, I mean, it's more like an open hub. You can yeah. go back to areas you've been, but once you get into an area that you're going on a mission on, it's fairly linear, fair to say, I think. This is why I kind of make the the early kind of uh, 3D Zelda comparison, because, yes, Ocarina of Time has Hyrule Field for you mm. to uh, gallop across, but ultimately you're going in one direction, and that's, you know, the next temple. Yeah. And... That that being said, I I do actually really like the structure of uh, Beyond um, Good and Evil. I think they do a really really good job of selling the culture of uh, of the Hillians and and um, you know the various different animal people like you know mm. the city areas, the busy um, traffic and and all of that stuff. They they where it's not you know particularly great from say a mechanical standpoint there's not a lot of you know a lot to do in this in open environment they provide you it does a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of world building and giving you a sense of the people and the culture that lives there hmm. yeah and i think that's the difference from today it's yes there's a hub but there's there's not a lot to do in the hub yes there's one or two photos you can take of you know the animals jumping in and out the sea and, and whatnot and you know there's there's areas that are cordoned off by red barriers and you you know before you can get a key or the hovercraft yeah, yeah. that can jump yeah. ex, you know certain sections so it, it allows them to kind of you know guard off sections of game uh, gameplay then then open it up as and when you you upgrade and I, and I like it for that and I think probably in to the problem with today's um, you know, hub world is that they would be full of sixty <laughs> yeah, different yeah, icons yeah, yeah. around that hub world for you to go off and find. And here it's well, you got the canal because that's going to take you to the you know the district you need to, and you don't need to do anything going up that canal. And it's just it's actually it's both refreshing and also slightly weird yeah. and empty because they haven't filled the world up with anything other than context of the world. And and but like. Josh said, I, I think yeah, I quite like yeah. that. <laughs> it feels it feels nice not to be, you know, pushed from you know, pillar to post trying to do everything in a, yeah, in a relatively small open world. But I'd imagine putting myself back to the time period then, I, I think it would have been quite a technically impressive, even for you know, that small kind of hub world. I think it's quite, you know, it looks nice. I think the only thing that possibly, to my memory from that time, that would have stood out would obviously be Grand Theft Auto 3 um, as having a more dense open world that you could actually explore and everything but i mean that's like yeah. pointing to the unicorn in the corner and saying that why aren't horses like this you know um <laughs> that's a good question but yeah something like the 2009 wolfenstein game having been an open world game and then kind of pulled back into a, a open hub that did have some difficulty traversing with enemies there etc but mostly that was entirely just to get you from one mission to the next and it was there more as a just as a, a way to explore than than to actually do anything and interact with but back to Josh's point, I think it, it you know, even if the, the, the hub nature doesn't actually serve much purpose in getting from A to B I think it sells the world yes, um, yeah, yeah. in a pretty good way um you know they, they do maybe do a better job once you get into different sections of the the area but you know that's i think it's a good open 
um, introduction to what the hill is. Mm. is. Yeah. Something I really appreciated on like mm. revisiting this was like every upgrade that your ship is ever going to have is there in the garage <laughs> from the first time you go there, and it works like it works both as kind of like it, it relaxed me because I knew exactly how many pearls I needed to get to get the mm-hmm. the the next upgrade. So mm-hmm. I wasn't constantly going back. I right, I've got five now. I can go there, and and also it worked as a really good tease for you know future stuff. Like you yeah. see the space engine like right at the beginning of the game, and it's a great li- and it's ages before you actually have enough pearls to actually get the thing but it's so cool that they tease that right from the beginning and mm. you've got that at the back of your mind going i can't wait until i finally get to go up into space <laughs> um, pearls are a currency for this garage and, and the garage are the bits that you can upgrade your hovercraft and the hovercraft lets you get to other areas fairly simple but they they, they pull this tease which is for the first half of the game you get like seven pearls yeah. <laughs> it's like you, you're just bit by bit by yeah. bit and you're looking at the space engine and it's 90 pearls and you're going i I'm, I've, I've been playing this for six hours i've got like mm-hmm. 10 yeah, pearls get like, there on new game plus 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah what and then at, yeah towards the back end of the game it's like here's 15 pearls in a room <laughs> like uh, yeah. yeah, great. That that I had that I had that experience definitely because I, it you know it's it's actually thirty. I remember this very clearly because I didn't. I got, I got it today. Um, I, I finished my playthrough today. I had like six or seven pearls, and I'm like, oh god. Well, now I just have to go do the pearl hunting, and I'm going to be at this for an hour. And then you go into it's in the volcano. There's a section where every enemy you kill gives you a pearl, so you get like twenty <laughs> twenty five pearls just in that one little area. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, you could read that as maybe they were going to make this a longer game. And on one level, I kind of wonder if that's it. Like if you were supposed to have to go through a, yeah. another dungeon yeah. or um, another kind of area before you had enough to go a- and actually purchase that space engine. Um, Absolutely could be. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. a hub world like that, I mean, sure, there could be another three or four worlds that are bolted on and they just run out of finance yeah, or the yeah. game needs to be shipped and that stuff got cut. You know, yeah. the, the, the story as it is. Um, there, there is an aspect of when pearls are dropping like raindrops from the sky, you sort of think, well, is that just a, a poorly um, balanced economy? But then again, it does have the happy either intent or coincidence that Tony said, where it feels like that's so far out of reach, and then suddenly it's not. And it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't feel necessarily like I'm just getting there, getting there, getting there, churning it through and get there. It does feel like it's worlds away and then it isn't, even if the way you get all of the pearls is a little bit okay, silly. So uh, speaking of uh, combat, as um, Nick mentioned earlier, um, he said uh, bow staff, but uh, the game or the, the game's wiki actually refers to it as a die Joe staff. And the other option is the gyro disc glove. Um, I, I think has been mentioned uh, by our form form correspondents, but the fact that there are no guns in this, the the gyro disc glove you can use to kind of hit switches and hit some of the enemies in the back in the jetpack to disable them. But it's not really a ranged weapon. I certainly don't remember using it to attack enemies. In so the boss fight, it's a ranged weapon. I can tell. Boss fight, sure, <laughs> but that's more like you're using it to stun the boss than necessarily do damage if i'm remembering but yeah for uh, for for most enemies it's not it's not any good as a weapon and it's it's too awkward the way that you have to use it to to really get much use out of it that way it's essentially it's essentially the camera yeah (laughs) Yeah, more or less but 
Well, it's the camera controls and which, then a different button. Mm-hmm. So, which yeah. definitely isn't the way you would choose to interact with a ranged scope versus a camera. Those would look like very different interfaces to me. With a camera, you'd want to zoom in in a completely different way. I, I don't know how to explain it better than that, but uh, you'd want to be able to get closer with a camera um, and, and you wouldn't mind so much about what's in the center of the screen versus what's on all of the screen with the camera whereas with a ranged weapon you kind of do want a bit more precision than that so let me tell you on the combat that is the combat that i remember from 2003-4 absolutely um <laughs> so in my head i'm playing this game as as jay really cool kind of you know funky girl style and, and i'm hiding behind crates and like conveyor belts in a meat factory slowly pushing myself past the enemies popping up, taking photos and, and solving the case whilst at the same time in my head, maybe a uh, Batman Arkham <laughs> style of not quite that complex, but certainly, you know, dodging and hitting um, the enemies and, and going back undercover and all in the very kind of almost Metal Gear kind of almost um, Splinter Cell kind of style in my head. That That's not what this game is. <laughs> you know, it's zoomed to 2017 and actually going back to this game, it, it sometimes can be quite jarring how different a game is in your head versus what it is, you know, in, in current gen. And um, the combat is is very simplistic. I mean, essentially, you have a kick um, of the people at the back. You have a, the staff that hits people, but it might as well be the same as a kick. And obviously, the glove, which doesn't really be used too much for the, the combat. But but that's it. There there is the ability to kind of dodge, but very unreliable i i found it to be to be fair though they don't really want you to be in combat most of the time most of the there's point a lot of it, places you have to. that's though. true but like the only place that i found the combat to be particularly challenging hmm. was when you're fighting the guards who you're really not supposed to fight if you if you kill once them once they get their shield or, up yeah, yeah 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 if you take them down at all then it's really you can fight them most of the time until they start uh introducing those one hit kill lasers which less said about them the better but um <laughs> yeah you know, for the most part they you're not supposed to be fighting the the particularly difficult enemies and there are definitely exceptions um but it, i i don't think that the combat it would have been nice if the combat had been better or more responsive but i i did not for me personally i don't think that that part took too much away from the experience yeah. for me and and th- this criticism would probably extend to most of the mechanical stuff in this game Mm. is that the combat's just decent it's adequate it gets the job done i never found it particularly frustrating except for very key moments um like general use it was fine but it just didn't have that hook where i was like actively enjoying what i was doing and i you know Mm. i played this post Arkham Asylum so I I didn't have the illusions that um, Tony had Um, but yeah it's it's just kind of like the animation for Jade kind of tricks you into thinking that thinking you're doing something more complex than you actually are Um, like I I am kind of just tapping um, you know square 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 over and over again and there's like like this is you know it's not like combat for games was you know dumbed down back then like this is post this is post devil may cry like we had complicated combat systems at this point so for beyond good and evil to be as basic as it is 
uh, it's okay. It's just it's a shame that it's just not particularly compelling. Uh, and that's back to my what I said earlier about mm. it, it having a number of ideas that it, it feels like it's it's taken from a number of places. Yeah. But it doesn't excel in any single one area. So and yeah. the combat being one of those, it it feels really rudimentary. As um, Josh said, it it gets the job done. And mm. I, I I agree with you, Leah. That like for the most part, you're trying to sneak around. You don't want to engage, but there is definitely areas where there is no way out of rooms unless you engage. And when that happens, it feels very much, and I don't know how to describe this other than a small kind of little animation loop of her kind of just doing the same thing over and over again, Mm. moving the the camera and her in a slightly different direction to repeat the process. And actually when, when the guards do become um, shield guards, I think that's at the point it highlights all the problems with the combat system is there's not enough variety other than button mashing. So you're trying to dodge and jump behind them, but the guards just swing around far too fast for that to actually happen. So really what you need to do is just back out the area, let the whole room reset and attempt the stealth mechanic in. And when that goes wrong, you know, so it, it just, it doesn't playing it in 2017. It, I think all its flaws are highlighted maybe, you know, a lot more than what it would have been in 2003. Yeah. But then to, to Josh's point, it, you know, games had figured out combat systems. And I'm not asking for this to be uh, a lavish over the top, um, you know, Batman Arkham style, guy. not at all. But I, I do think having more than one single move to take down uh, enemies in the game would have been you know, a welcome um, change of pace because ultimately what happens a lot of the time is every encounter feels exactly the same as the last encounter. Yeah. So you just feel like, okay, yep, do the same thing again. I have to agree. Part of the nomenclature, if you like, that I was kind of poking fun at with action-adventure is there's a notion that, yes, there were platformers that, that had solved a lot of the problems that this game has as a 3D platforming uh, game in some respect and, and yes there were games that had done 3d combat melee combat and that kind of thing uh far better than this and there is that aspect of the action adventure particularly around this time where it is kind of jack of all trades master of none and that that sounds like an incredibly uh in some ways incredibly harsh criticism um but in terms of the hovercraft as well, whether you're firing the gun, that feels very imprecise. Kind of waving the stick around to try and get it to hit the giant sky centipede thing that you're boss that you're taking down. You know that that and yeah, you've got a lock-on missile, but the guns are supposed to be there for a reason, and it ends up kind of feeling like you're always fudging the the aspect of the controls or the mechanic that doesn't quite work as it should. Same with the camera. You know, there's that aspect of you've got to know how to play this camera and you can't just forget about it. And you know, you can't just fire and forget on any of the aspects of the gameplay. And yet when it comes to to the combat, it's button mash. It's an auto combo. You just keep hammering X. Timing doesn't matter. Um, you know, number of times you hit it doesn't matter. You just keep hammering X. And the only thing you have to recognize is if you're just about to get hit, maybe you want to dodge. But even then, I found in a lot of combat, I could just keep hammering X and keep strafing around an enemy. And mostly, if I knew the enemy, I could stay out of out of its range of attack. And and that makes in some it... respects as well. Like death wasn't an issue if you if you do die they just put you back to quite yeah. an early yeah. well, just you know earlier within that level yeah I, I mean i had all the collectibles so i had 16 hearts <laughs> like, um, it was very hard to die but yeah. you know if you did it it wasn't punishing anyways yeah. so if, if if we were to say hypothetically speaking that 
the combat perhaps could have been circumvented a bit more for for some of us at least tony that, that seems to be what you're suggesting then the the natural extension of that is to say that okay so enemies are put in there but you have to stealth your way around to get the photos you need to get for the for the no. story no no do not make a game where this is all it's all these stealth sections yeah, no, I, I would never yeah. complete the game if that was the case <laughs> i generally really don't like stealth but i i mean it it was it was okay here, but I still would have, I think, preferred needing some kind of combat or something. I, I yeah. or maybe more of a focus on the platforming and take out the enemies entirely. Or I, I don't know. So, so for me, like I, I am a fan of stealth games. Yeah. I really do love stealth games. I despise the stealth in this yeah. game. It is easily my least favorite uh, part of Beyond Good and Evil. Yeah. Um, and th there are several reasons for this. So like some aspects that I think make a good slash great stealth game are you have to have a lot of options in, ver in terms of traversal and in terms of method of approach, method of attack to compensate for the lethality of your enemy. So like great examples of that, um, you know, Metal Gear Solid, you have so many tools at your disposal, so many uh, ways of navigating the environment. Mark of the Ninja does this as well. Mm. Um, and also just clear communication. So, like, you as a player have to be aware of, where, you know, when you're hidden, when you're not, how much the enemies can see ahead of them, all of that stuff. Like, that's important for a stealth game. Uh, like, my feeling during all of the stealth sections in Beyond Good and Evil was that there was only ever one way to do any of them successfully. Mm -hmm. And if you deviated from that path you were met with, met with, you know, severe punishment. And that just, like, it just was not fun. Like, it wasn't mm. engaging the, you know, the part of my brain that that loves stealth. It, it wasn't engaging. It was just, like, an extremely frustrating puzzle, and I hated it. I, as you know, Josh, I'm right there with you as a fan of stealth games. There's a reason I said at the beginning of this show, in 2003, I was playing Hitman Splinter Cell. Metal Gear I came to later, but yeah, absolutely right there with you. And to me, I know it's not true because plenty of people have played those those stealth games and, and didn't like them either. But for me, when people say, oh, force stealth section as a bad thing in a game, this is the sort of game they they that comes to mind for me, whether or not that's what they mean. But this is the sort of game that comes to mind where in the middle of the game, uh, one of the areas in, partic in particular, there's a heck of a lot of stealth. And it's not necessarily insta-fail stealth because combat starts and it's tough combat, but run away, reset, fine, start again. It's just frustrating because there is so little wiggle room. You're not in a big open area. Verticality, not an issue generally in this game. You're hiding behind a box that you're not 100% sure you're fully hidden behind. And the number of times I had a guard suddenly yell, what's that? I see something. And the, I, as far as I knew, I should have been hidden. And I was and it's just... And again, it just feels like this is kind of skating along. This is not even fine, but like bare minimum, this will do as a stealth section. And it feels like it should be so much more than that. And I'm not sure because on the one hand, I'm saying, well, yeah, I agree with Tony. Maybe dial back on the combat if it's if it's going to be simplistic. 
bit less of it. But then the other hand, I'm saying, well, dial back uh, on self. Then I can't just dial back on all the gameplay and just be, you know, you it, can't I, have everything. I loved Africa, <laughs> but you can't just be camera. There's got to be something more to it. Than well, that, you, know? I, you say that, but you know. But, well, uh, <laughs> But to my point, I, you know, I I could foresee this game with the way it sets out the story as a a more interesting game as a you know if it was a good stealth game, Jade stealthing around, taking photos, you know, solving, you know, the bigger mystery of the island, um, and you know, ultimately, mm. you know, bringing down the big man. And like I think that's a that to me it makes more for a more interesting combat narrative driven game than what ended up being here because the stealth is just yeah. really once again rudimentary it's very you have to remember and i know metal gear was probably ahead of its time certainly metal gear solid um felt ahead of yeah, its time but it that was, that was yeah. five years previously to the previous to this you know there and so i think you know more of a, a 3d environment so splinter cell you know it the stealth stuff was was more advanced than what they give here and the combat stuff was more advanced than they give here. so it it feels like it, it attempts so much but just doesn't master any one aspect of that, which is a shame because um, I mean I, I remember being as a as a secret area I ended up having to go to, and there was clearly only one way I could get past this guard. There's there's a you know, set of two guards wandering around for each other. Um, I stand by a box. The guy sees me. I stand by the box. I the guy sees me. I do this five times. I'm like, well, there must be a different way. So I go onto YouTube, have a quick look. The guy stands by the box <laughs> and the guard doesn't see him. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> what am I doing wrong? I then go and stand by the box another three times. And on one of the times, the guard doesn't yeah. see me. I'm in the same, literally the same place. And it's, it's, there is no other way around that scenario. And it's, it, the stealth just punishes you because it has a, a very you know, small yeah. and narrow set of rules. But then there's not enough flexibility in those rules for you to actually, well, there's no light or dark area. It's literally just line of sight. And then it's there's no yeah. indication to the player also what that, that line of sight though, is. And I, I don't know whether I would consider this to be a good thing or a bad thing, but there's really no penalty for getting caught in these stealth sections. If you die, you just go back to the beginning of the stealth mm-hmm. section yeah. and i don't know whether mm-hmm. it, in this case if the stealth being what it is if there were a more punishing penalty uh for getting caught especially in the instant kill sections mm-hmm. it would feel un yes it would <laughs> feel would be a it lot would more feel angry show if that and, was the case <laughs> i don't know that well for me personally i can't speak for anybody else i don't know that mm-hmm. i necessarily would have finished it and if i had i certainly wouldn't have had such fond memories of it as i can say that i did but at the same time if you're going to make the punishment worse for for messing up a section you definitely have to make the responsiveness and the just the overall gameplay element to that better yeah if if it had been a metal gear level of stealth and that's just to pick something that you know um, the highlight yes exactly if it had been something closer to that and there had been a harsher penalty then maybe it would have made those sections feel more worth it. As it is, it's, oh, this is not great stealth, and eh, you mess it up, no big deal. So if there's no big deal, then why even have it? Um, I think it makes the game more interesting. I, I Although it's not particularly well done, I, I think you know if you took that out, you would end up in a, a just a rudimentary um, you know combat game, which yeah. I, I think that, you know, there's some, there's some problems with the game mm. of repeating areas over and over again um, to the point where sometimes you're not sure if you just running around in circles and i think yeah. if you took out some of those stealth sections it really would literally be run through a very similar looking area for 
12 hours and get through to the other side. So I think it, it adds an element, and I think on a design doc, it's a really nice idea of, well, solve this case, take pictures, a um, little bit of stealth, a little bit of combat. But I just think that the final product doesn't quite pan out the way the design doc would have been laid out on the table. We're all sounding, quite, I think it's fair to say, quite negative at the moment. Uh, there's a reason I put gameplay early on. If you're listening to this and currently raging at your iPod, <laughs> what do people listen to podcasts on these days? I don't know. Um, bear with us. I'm almost keen to say, I've got on the show notes, uh, kind of seeing behind the curtain here, I've got companion interaction management, puzzles, hovercraft racing and looter chases, and beluga spaceship. They're all things. I'm almost yep. inclined to say... <laughs> see what we had to say about combat and stealth unless anyone feels strongly otherwise i really really... well the photography okay so the photography photography is something that's different about this game uh there are bioshock had photography for example there are certainly games that uh that involve photography as a as a kind of secondary to combat etc however in this game jade is a martial artist and photojournalist those are both things about her character that were kind of laid out in the design doc view or in the idea of the game if you like and photography is a big aspect of that now a large part of it comes down to photographing uh, seven rolls worth of animal photographs you're collecting a photograph of each species and starts off with a little tutorial at the beginning and then you are free to take photographs of anything that moves in front of you that seems to be alive and it will then tell you whether or not this is something that uh, the science museum are willing to pay you um, money to to have photographed for them. They are because the planet is under siege. They are trying to uh, create a, a a collection of or um, yeah, a collection a record of all of the species that inhabited the planet in the fear that they will be extinct at some point in the potentially near future, and therefore they want to have them on record. Um, that's the the reason for the photography. How do we feel the photography? works in the game so um this this is the one mechanical aspect of the game that i just love um i think it works both mechanically and as a piece of storytelling and world building um i think it it wouldn't be nearly as appealing as it is if the art direction wasn't as good as it is um i think all the creatures and animals and and all of that stuff the fauna is really really gorgeous i mean obviously i'm talking about you know ps2 era but the art i think the art direction makes it uh, ageless like i, it I really it upscales really well yeah, yeah. I, I agree yeah with that. absolutely and like I, I love how dorky the flies look, like <laughs> stuff like that, like the, the chunky, dorky looking insect, them, chunky yeah, insects, yeah. Um, and and it's just really, it's a lot of fun to try and, it it's more appealing to me because the modern version of this is like scanning. So in Prey, for example, you scan enemies, and that's less appealing to me because it's very clinical. It feels like you're doing it for a very specific thing. Uh, where it's you know upgrading your character it's a very selfish motivation whereas with this it's like you're helping the scientific community catalog all these creatures making sure that there's some documentation about them in case the worst happens
hands and you know the joy of your you know the person you're working with every time she gets a rare creature oh yeah those are really rare thanks for that and the whole framing around that and and also just the pleasure of lining up the perfect shot and and it's not good enough that you know for me that you know the shot works and i it. get yeah. the yeah. the uh, get you know the uh, the roll of film or what have you i want to get the perfect picture of the thing i want to you know frame it make sure it's really good <laughs> and and make sure you know the you know whatever the equivalent of uh, hillian's david attenborough has plenty of resources mm. to uh, to work from i i just think this whole thing is a joy uh, yeah no i absolutely agree uh, the camera in terms of mechanically, it can be a bit fiddly and you kind of learn the distance you have to be away from something. You've got a certain amount of zoom, but it's not masses. Uh, and and you have to, or certainly I found, I had to occasionally go into camera and then back out and reposition myself to then go back into camera. And there was a little bit of fiddliness to it. But as you say, Josh, the idea behind it and the reason you're doing it and the fun you can have with it, especially finding some of the more hidden animals or working out how in the middle of fighting a, an enemy you can kind of get some distance and get a shot even while maybe Paige is lying on the ground being attacked by one of them. You know, you're you're trying to get them all and there is a massive set of sense of satisfaction for that. So I was more than willing to kind of go into photo mode, back out, go in, back out a few times to get the shot that I really wanted. Um, sometimes difficult to tell exactly where around you the fly has gone to so sometimes it does kind of take a little bit of fiddling but uh very much worth it i thought yeah there <laughs> I, I i'm not normally one to spend a whole lot of time in in photo mode in games mm. um but for for whatever reason it, it really did stick with me in this one um there is and i still don't know if you can actually get to him beforehand but up on the roof of the lighthouse yeah. one of the first animals that you can see i think you can even get there before you get your camera but one of the first things that you can see is there's this little guy he's wandering all around the top of the lighthouse and you can't actually or i could not actually get a photo of him until you go back to the Likewise. lighthouse later after it's been destroyed yeah, and, you need yeah. the zoom that's why yeah i mean i had the zoom when i went back and i was like, I don't remember what I went back for, but I went back and I'm like, okay, well, now's the time. I'm going to go get that guy on the roof. And I still yeah. couldn't get him. Maybe that was just me. But um, yeah, I and I sat in the water for quite a while with my camera trained on where the big whale type thing uh, mm-hmm. just to, to try and get a picture of that. So yeah, I really I really enjoyed the uh, the photograph. Yeah, that, those yeah, aspects that are actually the things that sell the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the hub world a bit more because yeah. it gives life to that area where it can be a bit, a bit plain. You know, the whales jump in. Yeah. Um, there's a few sections where you have to like get right to the edge and just see something jumping mm-hmm. over the clifftop. Um, and I just found myself going into areas and almost the first thing is a new area. Right, what's there to take a photograph of? Yep. <laughs> where, where is it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So yeah, just it, it added a, a layer of intrigue that yeah it was yeah interesting i liked it so with 3d platformers and and action adventure games there can there can be a certain amount of collectathons of pointless collectibles something you're just sent after because you're sent after either to unlock a different area of a game or just because you need to collect them whatever it's just what the game has you do in this case i think i'm right in saying that every collectible including the photographs always feeds back something into your character even if it's just money that you get from it you're going after all these things hopefully because you enjoy and i think they do make it uh, enticing but i think it is worth saying as well for the photographs or for the upgrades to the ship or your character or whatever it might be 
there's always a reason to go out of your way to get these things in the game as well as I felt for myself. So like Tony, I certainly sat there when I played the game and I made sure that when I was coming away from an area, I'd kind of got all the animals. I had, you know, a quick check on the internet, make sure I'd got any animals from there that I had to. And before I went to the moon, I made sure I'd got all of the mm-hmm. animals bar the one that you can't get till you're on your way to the moon. They, they send you uh, an, an well, empty yes. at the end, don't they? Full of all the all your snaps. If you catch uh, get the last one, yeah, it's like, oh, absolutely. there they all yeah. are. Um, <laughs> and and that is the fact that I was willing to do that, albeit at a time where I was playing some games to completion that I had no business wanting or needing to play for the achievements in this case i did not feel like i was hard done by the only reason i felt hard done by is because really this game should have a thousand achievement points not 200 but uh, <laughs> it certainly didn't bother me at the time doing all of that for the joy of it as well as the achievements so well that kind of deals with the gameplay aspect as far as uh, the aesthetic uh, we're hearing again from uh, nick turner who says a special nod has to go to the sound design of the game especially the music the song Propaganda, which plays in a bar in one of the main towns, has stayed firmly lodged in my brain ever since, and it sums up the feeling uh, sums up the feeling of the game in places. The innocent citizens of Hillies are being exploited, not only by these guards, but also the aliens who own the factory, who I think are treating the civilians in much the same way as humans in the Matrix movies being harvested for resource. Uh, pretty much, yeah. Um, the cartoon-like style of the graphics were quite unique, and it is certainly a game that has remained very fondly in my memories. The locations, characters, sound, and even the user interface with a spiralling keyboard that rotated with your thumbstick was a pleasure to use and not something I've seen since. Thank you, Nick. Um, yeah, let's start with uh, the music that Nick loved so much and the sound design. Um, eclectic would be a word I would use. Uh, Josh, I will gladly hand over to you to see what you thought. Uh, being someone who whose opinion I take far more highly than my own in, on this matter. Um, yeah, I I really love the music in this game. Um, you, you say yeah, it is eclectic, but I I it surprised me how well it all fits together yeah. and how kind of tonally consistent it all feels, mm. despite the fact that it's from all you know disparate genres. Um, yeah. uh, Nick mentioned propaganda, which for me is kind of the most memorable and earwormy uh, tune in the game. Like mm-hmm. the moment you go into the bar and you hear that that music, you're just humming it for uh, ages afterwards. And 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 I also it, it it's like again like conveying culture because that's not music that's you know um, part of the soundtrack that's in the world that's part of the environment. And I love that kind of diegetic kind of use of music that's you know. It's it's there to create atmosphere. It's there for the audience, but it's also there in the world and is part of the culture about, and yeah, part absolutely. of the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, I think the one piece of music that I'm not a fan of is the garage music, and that's mainly because <laughs> they play the Jamaican card like it's a little heavy-handed. <laughs> um, uh, not, I mean, not to the point of being offensive, but like, just it's a, laid on a little thick, and yeah. I wish they kind of did something a bit different. But yeah, apart from that, like, I I can't think of a I can't think of a single tune that I didn't uh, I didn't like in this this game. Yeah, for for a game that uh, that really does have a very strong way of including. Uh, 
kind of diverse character models um, and, you know, a, a very multicultural feel to it. Yeah, the uh, the Jamaican rhinos do take it slightly farther than maybe they <laughs> needed to. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree uh, with everything that Josh is saying. I really do like the music for this. And um, I did not know that that was the name of that track from the bar. But uh, mm. yeah, that's that's the one that I always think of, too. It, it may pop up at the end of uh, of this particular podcast. Mm. Um, I, I do want to come back to the uh, not so much the Jamaican rhinos as uh, that kind of cultural melting plot, melting mm-hmm. pot aspect to Hillies and the fact that there are there is an eclectic mix of music, but they all have particular flavor to them. If you like, uh, when we get on to talking about something else in this list. I talked about this game kind of feeling to me like a classic PS2 action adventure that leans on, you know, classic PS2 games. And I think in the visuals, not necessarily art direction, but the visuals in terms of graphical and technological stuff, it kind of feels classic PS2 as well. And I know that sounds like it's dismissive or something. It's not meant to be. It's just... That's how I feel when I I look at the game. Uh, I think most people kind of know the 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 look that I I hope that that vague description gives. Uh, was there anything about not just the technological side but also the art direction that that you all wanted to to bring up and and mention? Well, they don't try to go hyper realistic with things, and I think that's Definitely. really what makes it age well uh, visually. Um, if if they had tried to do that, then I it probably would not have have gone quite as well. It's um, I I hesitate to say cartoony um because that sells it short. Uh, but it has an animated look to it that um, it, it doesn't quite go the Disney direction. Um, it doesn't quite go the Pixar direction. What it reminds me of is kind of like a, an independent comic book. Like yeah. it's not it's not going all the way kind of cartoony. You know it, but like the characters have distinct uh, silhouettes. Like they made sure that all of the characters, if you if you saw their shadow, you'd know who they are. Like that, that's their kind of approach to characters design. Yeah. Um, so, similar to like uh, Team Fortress Two, actually, that kind of like uh, approach to kind of slight exaggeration, but not going all the way Pixar. Um, that's kind of how I feel about it, and. Mm-hmm. The, the the thing is like I I think I agree with Leah I think the game has aged really well it's not it's not Wind Waker though like I think it's like what Wind is? Uh, I suppose <laughs> I'm yeah I, I just realized by making that comparison I suppose I'm saying this this regular card is doesn't look like a Porsche um, <laughs> yeah. but um, but you know I mean it's kind of like in the in the it's middle where it yeah. like it, it very much looks like a game of its era but at the same time does not look hideous it does not age in the, the way pit. that's yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. got a fairly soft color palette as well which I think helps it, it it's not realistic which certainly helps it it's a visual design that they they you know each character has their own separate look but i don't know it's got it's got yeah. quite a european feel to it definitely um, uh, i i'm so glad you mentioned that because that's what i was getting at with the soundtrack comment earlier so there's anthropomorphic animals but in terms of that kind of i, I use it as a touchstone so often and i don't like that i do it but there's an int- untangible 
European style animation that tends to fall. It's not Ghibli, it's not Disney, it's not Pixar, it's something else. All we'll call it European. And that that is so lazy of me to say it. But that is kind of how I feel about it. And and even with um so the anthropomorphic animals, uh, there's individual characters uh, that are that are human, but they live alongside uh, on this planet. Alongside, um, they they all have different. The species all have different uh, Latin uh, names. There's Carpus sapien, which is a, 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 a one of the orphans in the lighthouse, uh, is is a hybrid uh, goat human. I, I guess is the best way to say that. I think it's Capra. Um, uh, uh, Capra, sorry, yes, yeah. Um, she probably should know that, <laughs> being the, the proposed fan of Dark Souls that I am. Uh, but Paige obviously is a uh, pig or boar uh, human, um, and uh, there, there's aside from some jokes, some of them that work, and some of them that are just a bit dad jokeish uh, about the fact that he is a is a pig. Um, there's not really any lines drawn between. There's there's very much all these different uh, species of human, if you like, uh, interact and coexist and live together and work together and are friends, etc. There's almost, aside from the different scientific names, no suggestion that they are different species. They all just live on the planet together. Um, and taking into account the music, particularly the fact that amongst the uh, the various different types of music, there is uh, some uh, quite striking garage, drum and bass, jungle and rap music particularly, um, and the fact that a lot of the architecture is incredibly European, and I've already made the vague statement about the animation being kind of Europeanish. Um, this may be the most French game I've ever played, and that again, that sounds like I'm being offensive, and I apologize if anyone takes like I'm not at all. When well, Ubisoft I is a of, French company, I mean, it's not. I think when, that's fair. When, when yeah. I think of uh, sure. uh, films, particularly more modern French films set in and around Paris, for example. It is an incredibly multicultural uh, society that draws a lot from the uh, French African uh, influence that French African countries and people who've come from there bring to France, and and that is that comes through in this game through all of the aesthetic stuff I've just mentioned. Not not necessarily really strongly in any one element, but overall undeniably strongly uh and and not just because you've got monsieur de castellac that you're chasing around for the first bit of the game but everything about it just kind of has that feel to it in a really great way i think um i I really do like that aspect of the way it all comes together and and this is a kind of a, a situation where i don't necessarily feel like any part of the aesthetic is is necessarily stellar in and of itself but together they are incredibly striking you could I, I couldn't mistake this game for anything else i've i've always kind of felt a similar way uh, with regards to uh, another ubisoft game um mm. rayman um yeah. and particularly the newer rayman games it it has a very definite feel to it and it's not it's not quite the same as beyond good and evil um but it if you if i didn't know and you told me that those were from the same developer i would not question it once it it does just kind of feel not quite not quite american which is where a lot of video games particularly from the era of beyond good and evil a lot of the games that we've seen we've not seen 
a whole lot that come from that general area. It's it's Japanese or it's American or it's um, very largely Japanese or American, and that's that's a really really broad generalization. But it's it is unusual for that time to see something that feels quite so um, mixed European. I suppose you would say French yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> I was, try- I was trying to put a, a, like a bookmark in my head, like a, a film, and like, it's The Triplets yeah. of Belleville. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. It's the, it's just, I don't know, really angular kind of design. As, as we were saying, that, yeah, I think there's a, a Western design, there's definitely an Eastern design. And I, and I think, yeah, it's it's just has this really kind of European sentimentality in both story and uh, look that I think is, is one of the things, I think the reason why this game is still... Yeah, and if regarded. it sounds like we're struggling to describe what Europeanism is in video <laughs> games, one of us is American, mm-hmm. three of us are British, so make of that what you will. <laughs> um, so uh, that all being said, uh, we also need to talk about the story. I'm not sure we need to go in depth on story beats, but I definitely want to talk about some of the stuff that we yeah. liked and maybe didn't like about the story. So uh, set on the planet of Hillies in... 2435 so this is this is sci-fi far future stuff here folks um the doms aliens and absolutely 2003 it's got a z on the end and that is z is capitalized (laughs) (laughs) they they are sieging the planet and threatening to invade uh the governor has entrusted alpha sections which is a private military force to defend the people of hillies and very early on it suggested that perhaps this this military outfit aren't exactly friendly to everyone and perhaps are working if not in conjunction with uh the the doms then certainly not uh, to the to the people of Hilly's best uh, interests, uh, and Jade very quickly encounters Iris, which are a rebel group, uh, the Iris Network, who are trying to prove that the Alpha Sections are up to no good and trying to repel the Dom's invasion. The story is pretty much just fighting back against that. Jade is a human who owns and runs along with. Page, who is her uh, her uncle, uh, in, in quotation marks, friend of her parents, who has kind of looked after her for uh, a long time. Uh, they they own and run together an orphanage. Uh, she is a photographer slash photojournalist. Um, she only really does the photography, but uh, I, I guess photojournalist would be the job. Um, she is also a chosen one with special blood who is a prophecy child. Uh, I, I put those together because... Don't don't forget the healing powers. Um, yeah. so what, there's also that savior of mankind, except uh-huh. yeah, yeah. I, that part kind of comes out of nowhere. I, I alluded to this before. I I <laughs> I did. I was not the biggest fan of how Jade's story ends up because you don't really get any hints of it previously. I liked where they were going with the she's just kind of a regular person fighting back yeah. against the injustices that are going on and trying to make sure that the people know and you know that she's she's yeah. with this rebel group and then you get to the moon to rescue your pig uncle which is all fine, but then you just kind of discover that, wait, she's brought him back from the dead, and that's because apparently she is um, this chosen one, or whatever you, yeah. you want to call it. So so she does get uh, visions whenever she sees the high priest. 
you I think it's pretty much whenever she sees the high priest throughout the game or or certainly encounters uh, Dom's uh, characters or artifacts or you know information about that she gets some visions that suggest that uh, the the Dom's high priest is is there's something going on with him doesn't necessarily pertain to her although the the Shawnee moniker is is kind of bandied about a bit and leads you to believe something's going on but I'm reluctant to say maybe this wasn't such a trope in 2003 because this has always been a trope that in order for like we follow the protagonist of a story because they are the protagonist you can argue around that in circles all you like why are we always following the one who's going to save the day well we wouldn't be telling the story if we weren't following so fine whatever that's the way stories work they don't always have to be Harry Potter. They don't always have to be Luke Skywalker. They don't always have to be the chosen one who has something about them that is special in order to to save the day, to make a difference, to be a hero. She kind um, of she kind of almost came off to me as a, a like a Nathan Drake, only less murdery. Um, yeah. And yeah. and then it turns out obviously that she's a Jesus analog. You know, <laughs> I, I don't. Mm. It, it, it didn't ring quite right to yeah. me. To, to me, it strikes the two thousand and three is good way to amp it for a sequel. I don't think it's uh, the right story des- uh, decision because you know she's an interesting and believable character up to that point, and I think yeah that turn <laughs> the very towards the yeah. end um, isn't particularly a welcome one. But yeah, I yeah, yeah may- maybe it's my two thousand and three head giving a little bit of of space to to this be that. This is the that. part I had forgotten about. Yeah. I, I really did yeah. not remember I, this. I had completely forgotten that. <laughs> I, I, the, the thing that I find frustrating is that the narrative that they had up until that point, I think is interesting enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one, one of my issues with this game is that it has a really strong story idea at the core of it. And it doesn't flesh it out enough. And this kind of last-minute chosen one narrative is almost like an attempt to kind of just, like, put some energy into the story. But you could have done that if you had just written the story you had a little bit better. Because, like, sorry, to give this, uh, this criticism some proper context, like... If you were to describe to me the the kind of the whole machinations of, you know, the the Dom's invasion and how they're working with the Alpha sections in this kind of grand scheme to kind of capture people and stuff like that, and it's yeah. a really clever take on an alien invasion. Like I am, you know, I am on board. That that's a fa- on mm-hmm. paper. This is a fascinating suppression story. of the peace. The people yeah. really interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and the whole stuff with the Iris ne- network, kind of trying to uncover the conspiracy, all of that stuff, fascinating. Mm-hmm. I don't care about anyone in this world. <laughs> like that, that's the problem. Like the character, like yeah. the character that sticks out to me the most um, in my mind is Paige, and not really for the best reasons like he's memorable because he makes a lot of bad dad jokes yeah. and he uses his farts to power his jet boots and stuff like that that's not necessarily a great character and like i feel like jade gets a lot of praise for being a great protagonist i think she has a fantastic character design i think her the art direction that created her aesthetic is it's great 
but she's kind of a blank canvas. Like I, I don't really know, apart like all my descriptions of her would be her occupation, yeah. uh, her yeah. interests, and nothing to do with her personality or anything like that. But do do you not think do you do you not think um, what, best part of fourteen years ago that that was a no because I mean, like Half Life Two is only a year away. Like I. I, I it's not hit yet. Then. No, I, I agree, and and you know, bear in mind we, we look at that and and praise it as well. But I I think so, you know, fourteen years ago that there was a lot of characters. You know, the female. Um, well, <laughs> this could be an hour long discussion I, I think itself. If, but... if you're talking in terms of representation and in terms of like the symbolic yeah, value, it's... absolutely. Like Jade is, it's important that. It's not necessarily important that she's a woman. It's more that the fact that she's a woman is just a good thing because at the time everyone was a dude in games. But if, but no, she's just a strong yeah. woman. Like she's she's not sexualized yeah. no, that... at all. She's she's just you know she could she could be replaced with a, a male character and it not and... hugely t- change anything in the game. And I think that's what the positivity Abs- from I, that I, is. I, I, is I that... get that. Like I absolutely understand that. I just think. Um, judged in a modern context, and and I tried and I tried Absolutely. to judge. Absolutely, I tried, I tried to judge things both, <laughs> you know, by the standards of the era and mm-hmm. the standards of now. But in a modern context, like she is not very interesting in any measurable, you know, criteria. She's not terrible. The, what the about if she has powers? Of she's a not. She's not terrible. She's not active. She's not like Max from Life is Strange, where I actively want to strangle her. Um, oh. She's just kind of bland. So yeah, the descriptors about Jade are uh, the first things that certainly pop to my mind are um, her her visual design i think is very striking uh, obviously mm-hmm. there's a green theme going on <laughs> but uh but then it comes down to stuff like the fact that she is listed as a martial artist and photojournalist uh, in the wiki it's stuff about what she does not necessarily about her the, the, I... you don't get really any background to those things you don't really learn why she's a martial why artist she is, why, or why how she she's came a photographer. to be in charge yeah. of an orphanage yeah absolutely yeah, I mean it. It's there probably could be an interesting backstory for her. I don't. I don't necessarily think, kind of like Josh was saying, that she's a bad character, but she is more of a cipher than I think people really tend to remember, unless they have replayed the game recently. Uh, um, because there's nothing overtly offensive about her. They didn't. Her her model does not have gigantic breasts, and you know, it, it's it it doesn't matter that she's a woman, yeah. really, uh, which mm-hmm. is a particular strength of that, I think. <laughs> and I'm I'm just kind of repeating some things that other people have said, so I'll, I'll kind of no, leave it that. That it's, fine. but it's um. I think that she's effective. I don't necessarily think that she is outstanding. No, and I and I think in a modern context, I, I agree with everything you said. But I, you know, I do think fourteen years ago, it was definitely a selling point of this game, and it was it was one of the things that you know people were really into. Um, you know, games need to be you know maybe a bit more grown up, need to you know look at the world in a, you know a bit more um, you know human style. <laughs> then I think you know she is an important character to the game in history, but. Going back to her now, she is 
quite a blank slate. And it is interesting, actually, because right at the start, she's clearly, you know, trying to keep down, um, you know, uh, have enough money yeah. to keep the lighthouse uh, electricity bills on and, you know, bring up some you know, some children that she's fostered. And, you know, it, like that stuff's there. And then it yeah. completely gets dropped. And then there's a, the whole section right towards the back end of the game where the children have been taken by the doms. And, you know, she has that kind of existential crisis of I'm not good enough. And, you know, what am I doing here? That There's elements there. But that's what they are. They're just their elements. But yeah. I, I st- you know, she's a she's a good design <laughs> character from the outside, and she still is a good design character from the outside. So that that moment you're talking about, Tony, where uh, Paige is gone, mm-hmm. she goes back to the lighthouse because it's been attacked, and all the kids are gone, and she sits down with uh, Woof the dog on her lap, and and obviously uh, transposes all of her. Uh, disappointment in herself and all of her feelings of of um, not being good enough, you know, uh, onto uh, Woof, who obviously is in the same situation because he he was there when the kids were taken, but not didn't have the same agency. Um, but th- I thought that was a lovely uh, moment, and there's just an aspect of, and she is just a human vessel meant to contain the power to restore and take souls for the high priest there's that aspect of oh well that explains why she's such a blank slate kind of but that doesn't make it satisfying that just makes it make sense um that it, it kind of retroactively makes the fact there's not much to her necessarily also her, um, her uncle was uh you know is the the leader make, of okay. iris as well and it's like okay yeah like yeah, Fair enough, yeah. He kept that and, and, and maybe actually, she's the chosen one in in that regard. And I, I t- yeah, but actually, the fact that Paige turns out to be the head of Iris is, is again nice twist on him, a kind of silly comical character that turns out he's the guy organizing all the stuff. Also, kind of inconsequential. Mm. She would still go up there to try and save him, whether or not he was. It doesn't actually matter that he's been captured as the head of of Iris because the network is still functioning perfectly well. Um, so there, there's also an inconsequentiality to that as well, which is a little disappointing. Um, but there are there are nice moments between her and Paige. There, there's a kind of again, it's kind of weird to have three comic relief characters surrounding Jade's at various points of the game in Paige, Double H, and Secundo, the Italian AI. Um, that that's a little weird, but it kind of works in that kind of wacky cookie way that the story seems to kind of want to to deliver its its humor and its tone um but yeah i I think jade kind of represents the story for me there's a lot to really like about the story but ultimately it is a little more simple i think playing through it now than i remembered it being at the time Mm -hmm. Uh, and and remember i I played this in 2011 not 2003 uh sorry tony go on now I, I do um, playing through my yeah. my gameplay this time and um, my playthrough this time. I I remember thinking, wow, this story is is really thin on the ground. Mm. Like I'm doing all this stuff for the people, and it, you know, no one's having any real reaction to it. And I, I I did like the elements as you got further in the game, the propaganda of um, both um, well, you have the Iris and the Alpha sections propaganda kind of ramps yeah. up significantly. That you know the townspeople, you know, they're reacting in their own kind of way, but you know you're starting to get you know the feeling that you know they're, they're making some progress and and that the alpha section is is losing a, a little bit of grip and you know it, it gets heavier and heavier and that stuff does start to change within the hub world so i appreciated that there was yeah, at least definitely. something there that was um 
the mark in my actions that I was doing within with the regard world. to kind of the uh, to to kind of sum up what I feel about like the character designs and the character sure. roles here. I think that if there is a real strength or a real way that the strength of the designers uh, kind of symbolizing how they deal with diversity and how they de- it's that it's that mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that Jade is a woman. It doesn't matter that Paige is a pig. It doesn't really matter that it, it, none of this, you know, the, the governor is a black woman. And that is kind of unusual, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. You've got all of these different characters and it's never brought up aside from maybe one or two throwaway lines. When they do try to make it matter you you get the roster rhinos or you get secundo yeah. who god love him um is a caricature um you know it's it i i think that that is something that they did that is really unusual and that is one of the reasons why this game has stuck with me is that you just didn't see that if you saw a female character or if you saw an animal character or you know a, a black character or a um an asian character then that that was what they it were you that. know yeah yeah exactly and and here they it just they're there and it doesn't matter because you know that that's not who they are that's that's just their character design basically and i i kind of i kind of like that really like to ask whether we're, we're again a little bit in the situation of the fact that it doesn't matter is a good thing more in 2003 than now and where now you'd have to take that a level deeper and say the character shouldn't be about that side of things their race their gender etc but it needs to be reflected a little more or better perhaps than it was in in this game but it, it kind of doesn't necessarily matter that's a much bigger conversation anyway um about whether a character can just be interchanged in terms of race and gender and it makes no difference to the character is that actually okay or is that a very simplistic viewing of of that so uh, i don't actually know why i brought it up because i absolutely do not want to try and get into that when we're just talking about <laughs> beyond good and evil that's a bigger issue but um but you can I think, think about that on your own <laughs> absolutely yeah um okay so a, a big part of this game and i don't want to tread too much on the toes of the potential i'm saying the potential very definitely about the sequel um because obviously a hypothetical canaan rinse in the future um possibly many years in the future um, <laughs> 12 years from now would when want the game to, finally to... <laughs> comes out uh yeah yeah and then two years beyond that just to give us a buffer mm-hmm. to, to take it in yeah absolutely i'll be retired by then it'll be fine um i, I don't want to step on the toes of of that show discussing how beyond good and evil came to be that is obviously a very interesting discussion about that but i do want to talk about legacy and beyond good and evil 2 is definitely going to be a large part of that because in terms of direct legacy actually i'm not sure how much of an impact this game had outside of the sequel that is much anticipated uh and and i'd like to talk about why that is if we accept that this game didn't necessarily sell all that well in the in the um in the original version, uh, Nick Turner uh, is going to wrap up his thoughts. And I wonder, Josh, if you could uh, take us through Nick's thoughts on this game's legacy. So Nick says, I look back to that period and think about other games that I thought of as being really solid and enjoyable. 
I recall the name of a game called Second Sight, but unlike Beyond Good and Evil, I couldn't tell you very much at all about Second Sight right now. A testament to the character sound and world building present in Beyond Good and Evil. Although it's been at least 10 years, Beyond Good and Evil still has a special place in my heart and I've been keeping an eye out for the long-awaited sequel for many years. I was somewhat disappointed to see that the recent trailer from E3, as it seems to contain none of the character settings or charm of the original, but I will no doubt pick it up at some point and give it a chance. It does seem a massive shame not to continue the adventures of Jade and Co. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I don't think I'm alone in uh, thinking every time a new character popped up in that Beyond Good and Evil 2 trailer from, from this year's E3. Oh, that's Jade. No, that's Jade. No, no she's not there. She's there. Um. <laughs> she's there. And if, if you watch the extended footage, she's, she's in there right at the end because they keep highlighting her eyes. Uh, I have a feeling they, they don't want to commit to what she looks like yeah. in a more lifelike um character frame so yeah i mean i i think it's it (laughs) speculating about what exactly the sequel is going to be if it ever does come out is um is probably there's probably not much to add at the moment but i i think that it it kind of it would be it would be a shame i do agree with that to not hear something about because particularly since there is a cliffhanger at the very end after the credits where you see that Paige is coming down with the uh, whatever disease or infection the, it has. He's got that, a dom spore, I yeah, think it's called, on his hand. Yeah. You, you, um, you rescue Double H towards the beginning mm. um, from this very same thing, and they say this is the last dose of the antidote that we have. So when you see these, uh, these things coming up on Paige at the very end, you know, a logical place for a sequel to, to to be would be rescuing Paige from that. And this does not look like it's going to be that. So I, I'm not saying that that makes it a bad thing. I'm yeah. just saying that it may not contain some of the answers that you might be expecting if you had previously played the game or played the game recently. Yeah, yeah. But who knows? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, quite. Uh, Todinho, uh, in in the last we, we have to hear from him, thank you very much to Nick and Todinho for their posts. Leo, would you uh, like to take us through what Tadinho has to say, please? Beyond Good and Evil might not have set the world on fire when it came out, but it certainly became a marker of interesting games of that time, and a type of game we really don't have anymore. That's why I said I've been waiting for a sequel that will never come, because even with the announcement of Beyond Good and Evil 2, whatever that game is, it won't be the type of game the original was. It won't be the same kind of experience. The best I hope for is that whatever Michelle Ancel and Ubisoft are cooking up honors the original game, has some unique ideas of its own, and maybe includes photography. I would very much like that. I do want to touch on what we and what we think maybe other people are anticipating about or why they might uh, be looking forward to the sequel. Well, I think the legacy is uh, fascinating, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, well, so first of all, uh, Michelle Ancel uh, made this, and from 2006 2007 onwards there have been persistent rumors that beyond good and evil 2 is in the works that there are uh, there is a team that michelle ancel has is leading uh, working on it um in the interim he has obviously worked on uh raving rabbits he has worked on uh, rayman origins and legends he has also worked uh, more recently on a game called wild uh, a trailer for which uh, has come out and it looks like it's an open world game where you're in kind of um 
prehistoric times uh, as as a uh, tribal warrior of some kind. Uh, there's only, I think, been one trailer shown for that, and it's kind of quiet on what's happening with that now. Um, Beyond Good and Evil 2 itself, there was an interview in 2007 um, that uh, was uh, on Go Nintendo about uh, the possibility of, of a Beyond Good and Evil 2, and Michelle Ancel said he hopes that Jade in the future can stay true to her character from the original. See, 10 minutes ago for our thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> then there was a teaser trailer, which is um, uh, Paige is... or If not Paige, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be Paige, but if not, it's a character very much like him, is kind of sat on the side of a road next to a uh, dilapidated car that... Uh, is Jade right? I'm remembering right. Is trying to fix, um, and he is trying to snort flies out of the air. Is the only way I can describe what's going on, <laughs> um, and it's it's very much just flavor. It's a desert. It's trying to uh, get people excited for the game. Uh, that was a teaser trailer that was officially released, and then there was leaked footage which showed um, a chase through a city not dissimilar to the city shown in the E3 version of or the e3 uh, trailer this year uh, and there's a couple of shots that are clearly directly taken from that but it seems to show a much more mobile it almost looks like uh, an uncharted style climbing system which this was leaked in 2009 so would have been right around the time uncharted was coming out so clearly it seems like someone at ubisoft had an idea of where games were going to be going for a good four or five years uh, from that point onward but um and it was confirmed that leak footage was confirmed to be accurate um michelle ancel said that yeah this is this is real footage um and they put out a slightly extended version of that again it, it all felt like this was trying to get people interested <laughs> you're never gonna see it though. was trying to show that there was uh, an appetite for this mm. to the point where rayman origins was released and and a a, a quote vaguely attributed to to ubisoft was let out that if rayman origins does well maybe we'll consider beyond good and evil too i i i don't know what world we're living in where uh the the popularity <laughs> of beyond good and evil 2 needs to be demonstrated by the popularity of rayman but such is the the situation it's bizarre well I, but i would say i mean yeah. Ubisoft are a big company, clearly, but they they always remind me of a company that almost need every one of their games to be a yeah. big hit to continue <laughs> keeping afloat. Um, and yeah, that quite often happens for them because yeah. they they have a certain charm that you know other companies don't. Um, so I, I can see that needing that. But I look at the the legacy of Beyond Good and Evil, and I remember that yeah. that teaser trailer coming out of recent times, and people yeah. literally yeah. crying <laughs> like like oh my god. And that's fantastic, and I, and I feel like I, I understand the legacy to a point because it's an interesting game. Certainly, back from then, it's an interesting game. You know, its playability now I don't you know is questionable, but I think it has a, a set of ideas that you know blown out would be interesting in itself. But it yeah. it has picked up this legacy, and I don't know whether it's just because it's one of those ones. Oh, but we'd love to, much like Mirror's Edge, mm. we'd love to see a a sequel, and then maybe the reality is not something that is is so kind at the end, but. It's taken on a legacy that is really, really And strong. a legacy that perhaps you wouldn't expect for a game that struggled to sell 500,000 copies. I mean, it, it sneaked over, if you exclude PC version of the original, which third-person action adventure would not have been a big seller on PC back then, I don't think. 
Uh, that's entirely off the top of my head. And the fact that the HD remaster did seem to do well, it wouldn't be surprising if someone said they'd sold yeah, but... a million copies of that, for example. That's still not... doesn't feel like commercially the giant success that people's level of anticipation would seem to warrant. If, does mm. that make sense? It just feels like there's a disparity here cult between classic how much, of, yeah. but but even more than that, like cult classic. Some people would would call a cult classic a film that many many people will have seen. Almost mm. everyone will have seen. And sure, there's some that have a lot of love for it. But do, does Beyond Good and Evil have the level of exposure that that seems to warrant the? Um, I'm reluctant to say fetishization, but there is this. Uh, frisson in the air when even for me when Beyond Good and Evil 2 trailer fired up at E3 and, and even when um, teasers were coming out I knew of the game I hadn't even played the original at that point but I knew there was an excitement around it and that made me excited about it and I, I'm not sure where it came from unless Tony's hit the nail on the head and said it is just that there's interesting concepts in the game that you can't find anywhere else which is what Tadinho said So I wonder anyways. if um if like as seems to be the case with um certainly with me and tony um at at least we played it back close to release and then didn't touch it again for what almost 15 years so it 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 could just be that people i i think that it is almost certainly the case in fact that a large number of people and that's by no means to say everyone but a large number of people have that nostalgia for this game but haven't necessarily kept up with it in in the interim um now i certainly think that um a sequel will probably do well um i (laughs) i want to trust michelle ansel because i i have a very large soft spot uh for developers or for really anybody in the games industry who has that kind of passion and who really seems to believe in what they're doing and just kind of has that charm. Uh, I can't think of that many examples beyond perhaps him and like Miyamoto and uh, Swery has become one of my favorite people recently. Um, But, you know, I, I really want to believe that what he has will will really live up to what people want from it. But on the other hand, I don't know that it's going to be the same. I would really like to see what the version of the game that we would have gotten that was attached to that teaser trailer, and yeah. we never will. But that that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that Beyond Good and Evil Two, when and if it comes out, is going to be a bad game. It yeah. just might not be the same. I don't know that it's going to have the same impact. I, I I too am worried about the Mirror's Edge Two syndrome, and there's been a lot more time between this and Beyond Good and Evil Two yeah. than than between. Yeah, Mirror's sure, Edge absolutely, games. yeah. Yeah. Would it would it be fair to say, and uh, Josh, I do want to kick over to you in a second. Would it be fair to say then that Beyond Good and Evil Two needs to live up to the ideas and concepts and the philosophy behind Beyond Good and Evil, rather than the game that we actually find it yeah. to be today? Ideally, I would say yeah. That, I mean, that kind of goes without saying. It kind of goes without saying in the same way that uh, that. Um, uh, a remake should try to evoke the visual style that you remember it to be, not the one that was actually there, which was undoubtedly uh, a couple of generations uh, lesser in terms of its technical prowess than you remember, because the brain just papers over the cracks, doesn't it? I guess so. Uh, Josh, thoughts on uh, why Beyond Good and Evil Two has such a kind of I think fervor is not an unfair word to say about it, to be honest. It is unique. I think that's kind of 
where it's getting a lot of this attention. Mm. Um, the fact that Jade, like I know, I I criticize Jade a lot during this podcast, but we we said like her character design is kind of iconic. Like it, you cannot if you like you know the test for an iconic character is if you just saw their silhouette, would you know who they are? And I feel like Jade definitely passes that test. Um, she she has that kind of thing, that, and Faith from uh, Mirror's Edge has that exact exact same thing. It's an unusual character design, um, and is also a great you know uh, symbolically, if not actually in terms of writing, a great symbol for kind of you know female characters in gaming. Um, and I feel like that's that's kind of its legacy is that it just felt like such a breath of fresh air in a world where you had anthropomorphic uh, people um, in all of these action platformers, mm-hmm. whether you got Jack and Daxter or Ratchet and Clank or uh, Banjo blah, blah, even, blah yeah, and bleeb yeah, bleeb yeah. and you, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The, the famous buddy buddies kind of going through all these adventures and you've got Paige and, and, uh, and you've got Jade and they couldn't be more different from those kind of usual kind of here's your funny sidekick and here's the kind of strong silent type archetypes yeah. um yeah and i and i do think that elevates it to a status that i i you know all things are subjective etc etc i don't i don't consider this game to be among the classics <laughs> of the the medium but i do understand why all of these unique qualities kind of elevate it excellently put i think uh and and obviously we're going to summarize our feelings about this game but i thought it was important to address perhaps what from people on looking might be an odd uh disparity between not so much the critical reception for beyond good and evil but certainly the commercial success of it and then just how much uh anticipation is built around a sequel that seems to be a long time coming but maybe uh, ubisoft put it center stage at e3 2017 michelle ansel was on stage in what has been an on again off again relationship with ubisoft um he has uh wild isn't a ubisoft game i think i'm right in saying i think he was allowed to step away to make that uh but was still going to be involved so there's been a flexibility there but he seemed to be back on ubisoft stage with a full intent behind this and i hope it comes to fruition just because better to see what can come out of it than than not in my mind but okay uh, we've got our summaries to come, but we also have uh, your three-word reviews on the day of recording. We will pop out on the uh, Kane Rinse Twitter feed, at Kane Rinse, um, a, a request for three-word reviews, and you did not disappoint. Um, so I'll I'll lead us off, and then if we go alphabetically through, we will read your um, three-word reviews of the game. Zomoniac says, can't invert camera. Smoking Ape says, acrobatic philanthropic journalism. Veronica James says, Pokemon Snappy Zelda. Yeah. Uh, Capybard says, Clunky yet charming. Ben Morrow says, Needs a sequel. Brent Nelson says, Shawnee Doms Thindra. Pete McPhillips, Alien Animal Photography. Play Critically says, Rastafarian Space Rhinos. Nathan Druitt says, Delightful Gaming Purity. James McCall says, Afraid for Sequel. Gustav Dahl, Carlson and Peters. 
Fantastic. And thank you to you all for not putting up Halloween Twitter names. It made it far, far easier to, <laughs> to understand who you were and how to address you on this. Uh, thank you very much for the feedback, as always. Uh, so, our summaries. Uh, usually, I follow Leon's lead in trying to kind of put the most positive person last. I hedge my bets and I am now no wiser than I was when I put people in this order as to who's actually going to be the most positive. So we'll go with the order that I put. Uh, Leo, would you like to lead us off, please? Sure. Well, I I um, should start by saying that I don't have the same general feeling about the game. Well, I, I do have the same general feeling about the game. I don't necessarily have the same <laughs> level of uh, reverence for the game that I did when I hadn't played it in 15 years. Uh, and that is not to say that I dislike it because I don't. I think that now I have a slightly more realistic view of uh, of the uh, features and some of the detractors that the game offers. And um, that is a really generic way of saying that I think that people should play this game if they, uh, if, if they enjoy um, kind of the uh, the era, I, I suppose would be a, a yeah. decent way to put it. If if you like those kind of three D platformers, this is an interesting twist on that. Um, I am looking forward to Beyond Good and Evil Two, no matter what form it may take. But um, even though visually it is still pretty impressive, I think, and I think that it uh, it has aged well. Uh, I. Th- if you are going to play Beyond Good and Evil in uh, in 2017 or going forward, uh, just kind of have your expectations managed. Um, don't expect something that is wholly groundbreaking given everything that has come between. But I, I think that it's worth it just to kind of see what all the fuss may have been about. If you if you keep that perspective in mind, I think it's a, a good experience, maybe 10 to 12 hours, um, less than that if you want to, you know, use a walkthrough or uh, or just kind of hurry a little bit. Um, so, yes, I, I do still enjoy Beyond Good and Evil, but less for what it is than more for what it represents and kind of some of the ideas that it brought into yeah. uh, the genre and and into games in general. Uh, yeah, for for my own part, I I have to agree. I didn't play it when it was released, but I did play it in two thousand eleven, and I don't know whether I'm now more closed minded <laughs> than I was then, or I don't know what's changed because the game hasn't. I played the same version of the same game as I did in two thousand eleven, and I knew back then it was a kind of cult classic, um, but highly thought of by a lot of people and. I played it and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I would have put it amongst maybe not one of my favourite games of all time, but it certainly wouldn't have been ridiculous for me to suggest that to myself. And yet I went back to it and I was actually, even though it was only six years ago, I was shocked, frankly, how fuzzy every individual thing the game did felt to me. Even the photography, the actual mechanics of it, it's it just feels like a smidge away from being mechanically as good as the idea and it, that's what it feels like it feels like some incredible ideas that just kind of miss on execution unfortunately but that doesn't stop me from 
giving what will be undeniably useless information to anyone who hasn't played the game or to the developers when I say what I love about this game is its charm. Charm's just ephemeral, intangible. It's useless for me to say I love its charm. But I do love its charm, that it's got some ideas in there, that it, it tones down the combat. You don't need to kill everything that moves in order to be a hero. You can take a photograph of everything that moves in order to be a hero. Um, I love the ideas. I love um, the... The philosophy behind the game, and if if those, if Michelle and Cell can take those forward into a sequel, I I'm excited. And and the tone that is set by the the trailer this year interests me in a way that a lot of trailers don't, because a lot of trailers aim to be bland. That did not aim to be bland. I don't think uh, it may have rubbed some people up the wrong way, uh, but I think there's something interesting there, perhaps. Um, as for whether people should play this, it's easy to play. Um, if you've got an Xbox One, it's backwards compatible. Obviously, it's on 360 and PS3. Uh, and it's playable. I don't think there's much that's going to have you throwing controllers out of windows because of arcade game design. There's just not much that's going to make you think, wow, I don't think about this game necessarily. And that's something I hadn't expected when I went back to play it. Sorry, I haven't been more positive. I really thought I was going to be. Uh, but I, I do have a fondness for it. And, and that's... No small feat, I don't think. Uh, Tony, how about yourself? There's a few games which are sacred cows, and I feel like um, before the show, I would I would have put Beyond Good and Evil in that bracket. Uh, and going back and playing these games is always an interesting feat in itself because it, you know my mind was well, it's got some brilliant aspects, it's got some yeah you know, good combat, you know good photography, all that stuff. Now I I do think. Mechanically, this game is the jack of all trades and master of none. Um, whether it was back in you know 2004, I don't know, but it that's what it is now, uh, and and that's surprising to me. But I do like its charm. I think it does have a uh, an element to it that still stands out. But I I think the topic of women in games is still very much out there. But I think we've we've progressed a long way that actually. Just we kind of want a bit more now <laughs> and the fact that that was a you know a real highlight back in 2004 shows actually we've, we've made some leaps and bounds in, in that direction um, and I think it has a, a really interesting story to tell uh, set in a really interesting um, environment and world but beyond that I think time has left it in its wake a bit um, and Sacred Cows are beyond criticism and we're not beyond criticism in Gain of Rinse so unfortunately I do think, you know, gameplay-wise, it's not something that I particularly loved going through for this particular episode, but I didn't hate it. So it was more of a case of, okay, I'd like to get this done. I want to see this through to complete. Not brilliant, but I think I appreciate for the bits that it did really well, and I, um, its story that it did really well, I think it still stands apart from uh, a crowd. Excellently put. Thank you very much. Uh, Josh, you are clearly by far the most positive of us, <laughs> so you have the pleasure of going uh, going last. There are parts of this game that I have a lot of affection for. I, I talked a lot of sugar about the photography, and that still stands. I, I, I really do love that aspect of the game, and I think it works as both a gameplay tool and also just as a, a neat bit of... Um, 
kind of uh, world building and, and stuff like that. And the art direction's great. Like I, like I said, I, I mean, I kind of regret the comparison now because I realize I was just taking the best example I could think of. Uh, but like, it's not it's not kind of the the masterpiece of beauty that Wind Waker is. But it ha- it it has aged well, I think, um, uh, visually, and and I think the music's uh, pretty fantastic. Um, gameplay wise, like you know. Tony was uh, during his kind of uh, closing statements kept talking about maybe you know the era is the issue and and now time has been cruel to it. I think even judged by the standards of the era, it's it's not particularly great. I mean, I, I'm I'm actually looking at my uh, collection of games and and looking at games that have come out at the at same time. I'm looking at stuff like Metroid Prime. I'm looking at Resident Evil Remake. I'm looking at you know Metal Gear Solid 2 these are all games that have aged but the game design is still incredibly strong mm-hmm. and i think there's a difference between something being of its era and something being fundamentally not particularly fun to play and i think beyond good and evil kind of falls into the latter like all the combat all the stuff the combat and and the puzzle solving is serviceable the stealth is terrible um and and i think it it, it like it's not even an issue of the era it came out in i can play metal gear solid 2 now and still enjoy the stealth even though it has some aspects that you would never put in a modern modern stealth game absolutely so yeah i i, I feel like beyond good and evil is a mixed bag but what's there um uh, that I do love. I I really, really understand why this game has a lot of affection because it is unique and it is kind of special in those areas. So yeah, um, I like this game, but I don't love it. Guess kind of apologies to anyone who's listening who is just a, a diehard fan and uh, expected glowing praise. I get the feeling that the four of us kind of didn't necessarily expect going place praise because we kind of want to go in with an open mind but uh, i certainly and it sounds like uh, you guys was surprised that my memory of it didn't live up to playing it again especially mm-hmm. for me because it's not that long ago since i first played it you know six years not that long a period of time when you're my mm-hmm. age um, uh, so Thank you very much for listening. I hope we were we were kind to the game uh, in enough ways to uh, to please those who who wished that for this episode, uh, this issue. Uh, it remains for me, James, to thank Leah, Josh, and Tony for joining me, as well as our editor this week, Jay, and our correspondents. Thank you very much, and a final thank you to all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed this and other shows, please consider heading to our Patreon page and donating the minimum of one dollar per month. If enough of you do this, we are going to make double the amount of Kane and Rin shows in the future. Imagine that. Uh, so, head to patreon.com forward slash Rince and make it happen. Next time, in issue 294, Leon is marshalling his forces as universes collide and hero must fight hero to save us all. We're going to take you on a ride across 20 years of madcap fighting fun. <laughs>